This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, I understand that we have some uh, listener feedback from episode 327, all the way back at 327, four episodes ago. Well, I mean, it was sent in a little earlier than that, but we just haven't we were busy today. talking about your pet peeves. <laughs> yeah, be honest those were far more important. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> I'm being I'm, that's self-deprecation, my form of self-deprecation. Um, yes. So this feedback came from CA Newsom, who's long-term, long-time listener and friend of the show, and it was in response to our discussion about choosing to write in first person, choosing to write in third person. And at the end of the discussion, I was really curious why to hear from other authors why they chose to write in whatever person or tense they chose to write in. And this was the response from C.A. Newsom, which was fantastic, and I want you guys to hear it. She says, for me, the choice is purely practical. I want to show events that happen out of my main character's experience. With a close, multiple-character, third-person point of view, I have the freedom to present each scene from the vantage point that serves it best. I think writing a series from the perspective of one character would become very boring very fast for me. And I tend to agree with that, too. I think like there are some stories that I've written in a series that are only seen through Monroe's eyes. I think there's actually only one of them that I did that way, maybe two, but that's because they were broken up with stories that had multiple points of view in between. So it wasn't as boring because I had the opportunity to do it both ways. Anyway, she continues. In my first two books, I included the first person journal entries of the killer. And while they serve the story, I came to hate being inside that dark place for the months it took to write those books. Then there is the constant danger of galloping eye disease with first person. I so agree with that too. And the thought of line editing a first person book for consistent POV, I'd rather die several hideous deaths instead. I don't I've never written a full story in first-person POV, so I've never had to go back and line edit for consistency, and I have no idea what that would be like for me personally. I totally get where that's coming from. It is, but especially with the galloping eye disease, that is, I think, the would be the greatest challenge in writing first-person for me is eliminating all the eyes and finding ways to write the same thing without continually going, I, 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 I. Okay. Anyway, she continues. Hats off to anyone who does first person present tense well, as Susan Mm -hmm. Collins does in the Hunger Games. Yeah, that's got to be rough. 
And as for a second person, I have read one book in second person, and it struck me as a literary affectation and an experience I have no desire to repeat. And I have only read like snippets that were written in second person. And I that was already enough for me. So I would not want to repeat it. And I definitely wouldn't want to spend the year um, or more that it takes to write it dealing with that. So I agree with just everything that she said. So thank you for that feedback. Yep. And I, I, I agree as well. I think I've told this story before and I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the series, but there was someone in the Taylor Stevens group that suggested a, a series of books to me and they were uh, the main character uh, is, is like a researcher kind of thing. And, and she worked in Europe. And if you remember what it is, please post it in the group so we can let everyone know. But I love this series. It was really good. It was written in first person, all the books but one. And I, what made me think of this was Carol's point of it being boring. So I don't remember where it was. It was probably book six or seven. And I think she wrote 14 or 15, uh, where she went to the point of view of one other character. And that was just such a fun book after reading the first six or seven from one perspective and then seeing this main character from another person's perspective was so fascinating. And you know, being able to write from third person the way Carol was describing, it's very easy to add description to a character that he, that character would never say for themselves. They'd never talk about yeah. how handsome or beautiful they were. Whereas someone looking at them could do it or how fast or tall or, you know, whatever. There are just all these things that you can do with alternating points of view. But so it was really two, fun to read that series from that one book from a different perspective, different point but, of view. So there's two aspects to that. Cause when she's talking about it, she's saying that writing in the perspective of just one character would get boring for her very fast. I think that's what she's saying because yes. she says, I think writing is, but you're saying that it also can be more entertaining for a reader when other points of view come in as well. It was so shocking when I got to this book, got to whichever, whichever one it was that was written from the perspective of, of the main character's best friend, because she's such, the main character was such an unusual person. She was autistic and just her way of looking at the world was so interesting and unique. And it was really fun to be so deep inside her head for all these books. But then to see what someone else thought of her and the way that yeah. she acted and the way, not, not so much the way she acted, the way her mind worked from someone else's perspective yeah. was, was really fascinating. Yeah. I, yeah, there's, I totally there's get so that. much more you can do with, with third person. I, I, I almost wish that detective novels weren't mostly written in first person. And single point of view as well. Point of view. Um, I have a thought on that, and I'm going to try and keep it really short because this is not actually our show topic. I don't want to like bleed into that. But I, I hearing everything that you were just saying, it reminded me of my experience writing The Informationist, which was the first book that I have ever written, and it's how I learned to write writing the information. So so much I didn't understand about writing at the time. And I think that learning to write multiple points of view, regardless of if you're writing it in first person or third person, it's actually a learned skill. It's not something that you just automatically know how to do just 
by instinct, which sounds ridiculous to say, because if you can write a story from the perspective of one character, why can't you just switch over and then introduce another character? You sh- it, logically, it seems like that should just be a natural transition and it shouldn't require any practice or learning. But it's it's still a learned skill because it requires pulling out of one character's head, pulling fully into another. And it also requires learning and figuring out how that interacts with the story as a whole. When is the right time to switch? What is whose eyes it's best to show a particular aspect through? Because everything that you write, it's serving a purpose, right? And sometimes there's multiple ways to serve that same purpose. So figuring out how best to do it, through whose eyes is best to do it, that takes skill. It, it, it's, it's an acquired skill. And so for somebody who's just starting out, who's maybe writing their first novel or maybe their second, but doesn't have that confidence that comes from doing, it's far easier and maybe advisable to write a story with just a single point of view, regardless of whether it's first or third, because that's how you learn to get that first one down. And when you launch out into the second one, there is a a learning phase that comes with it. Maybe for some it's shorter, for others it's longer to figure out how to do it, but it does exist. And until this conversation, that just honestly never crossed my mind. So uh, I just, if, if you've, been struggling to write more than one point of view and make it work for the story and keep your pacing consistent and the story momentum going, just know it's not you, that there actually is a learning curve to this. And uh, and it's okay. Just keep at it. You'll figure it out. All right. And we do have a topic to t- for today, as, as Taylor mentioned. We're talking about character conflict and well, the actual title of the show, as you know, by looking at your uh, podcast player, is Character Conflict is Critical to Story Structure. Exactly. In what way? So, <laughs> well, don't worry. We will get to that. <laughs> so this is a continuation from last week where we were doing TV and story observations. This would be TV and story observations set two. And then. Character conflict is critical to story structure. So this one pertains to the show Bridgerton on Netflix. And before we get going, I have to mention that Bridgerton is not typically a show I would enjoy watching. And I am not saying that in any disparaging way. I am not putting down the show. I am not trying to suggest that this type of show is beneath me or that I'm somehow better than those who enjoy it. I am only mentioning it because I am pretty sure that for every listener who has seen or enjoyed Bridgerton, there is another one who checked out the second I mentioned its name. (laughs) So to any listeners right now who are thinking that they would rather take a needle to the eye then spend the next umpteen hours surrounded by vapid aristocrats in sort of this emerald city version of 1700s London where all the streets are clean and flowers are always in full bloom and every bit of fabric from clothing to carpet to curtain is 
beautifully coordinated with the walls and the furniture to create just this kaleidoscope of pastel eye candy. And the greatest existential threat is the possibility of not finding a suitable marriage partner. And high society gossip is the thread tying everything together. Well, you and me both. But this show has connected with an enormous audience. And in the language of creative endeavor, there is no higher mark of accomplishment than to connect with an enormous audience. So we do ourselves no favors whatsoever as creatives, as storytellers, by turning up our noses at opportunities to learn from and appreciate the craft just because the content itself might not be our particular thing. And really, when you think about it, interacting with creative projects that don't appeal to us personally is actually a better way to learn from them than it would be interacting with creative stuff that's more up our alley because we're not as distracted by the content and we can focus more on the structure and the craft that's guiding it. So specifically because Bridgerton has had such a resonating connection with so many viewers and because it is not something I would normally watch. I wanted to watch it to learn from it. And now you can learn from what I've learned. So I've been watching Bridgerton. And I'm only three about three episodes in. And three episodes has been enough to confirm that I am not its intended audience. And that's okay. Because what I can tell you is that this show has storytelling craft up the wazoo. And so much so that if you're able to step back and you can peek past the service, you can almost see the boxes being ticked off like this master craft checklist that's guiding its structure, which makes it very valuable in terms of learning what works and what doesn't and why this is connected with so many people. It's not just because it's of the setting. It's not just because it's romance or because... You know, that's the, it, it engages your, it's not because of all of that, because those types of shows are, there are so many of them out there and not all of them have that same type of resonance with the audience. So let's just look at some of these things and it would take, I don't even know how many episodes, way more time than I'm willing to invest right now to pull all the material apart and highlight each intertwining craft aspect and like, you know, beautiful minded on a board with the, the red strings and everything. But for this show, I want to talk about and present to you what I think is maybe the cleanest, clearest, practical example I've ever seen of what it looks like to deepen internal conflict and amplify the tension between a character's own needs and desires to raise the stakes and to create complexity and tension in an otherwise rather basic and simple plot. At least it's the best example I've seen on screen. And it's because of its simplicity that it doesn't try to pretend to be anything more than what it is that makes it so easy to grasp and understand. But to, to do that, I'm going to have to explain a bit of the story and that's going to involve spoilers. And 
I I would say I apologize, but actually I figure that anybody who's wanted to watch this show has probably seen the first season already. And anybody who's not interested in seeing it, no amount of convincing or spoilers is going to ruin it for them anyway. So it's fine, right? So this story, Bridgerton, it takes place, at least this first season does, during the debutante, debutante season in London. So it's this time of year when all the young ladies who are now of marriageable age they're presented to the court and then the balls and the parties and the picnics start and then the prospective young men who are looking for wives can meet and they can begin courting the most desirable and blah 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 right so it's called the season right that so during the season that's when the alliances are formed the marriages are arranged and then you know agreements are made backroom deals whatever but for young women women who've been raised their entire lives to believe that their only value is in securing a good match and bearing lots of children to further family name or whatever. This is a really huge big deal, right? That is our background. So enter our primary female character, Daphne. Daphne is the oldest girl of six siblings. She has two older brothers. Her father has passed. So her eldest brother, Anthony, is technically the man of the house responsible for ensuring that Daphne finds a good match. But he's not exactly dutiful in filling his roles as the eldest son either. So he's kind of involved in several subplots. And this story does have many subplots, which is fantastic. We're not going to talk about any of them here. Now, enter the most eligible bachelor, the Duke of Hastings. So Lord Duke here has zero interest in the whole marriage thing. He has sworn openly, plainly, often that he will never marry. And he loathes all these pushy mothers who are continually attempting to foist their progeny onto him, right? So the only reason he's present for any of this to begin with is because his father's dying and he's been called home. Or maybe his father's already dead. I might have got that timeline part of it a little messed up. I'm not sure. Either way, he's been called home to attend to these necessary affairs. He's not planning to stay long, but he gets strong-armed by the familial matriarch to basically show his face at these balls, right? So said Duke is very good friends with Daphne's brother, Anthony. And because of this friendship, and because Daphne knows her brother quite well, she's a very low opinion of the Duke and what kind of husband he would be. She comes from this large family. She's close to all of her siblings. She has a good relationship with her mother and her mother and father had a very loving marriage. And that's what she wants. She wants to emulate that. And she knows that the Duke is the exact opposite of every bit of that. And so unlike every other girl who goes all on Twitter, if he so much as glances their way, she has no interest in him. And you don't have to have ever read a romance novel or seen any form of romance movie to know that through that, we've just been shown the true, the two primary characters of this season's will they, won't they, how is this going to come together romance, right? You just see that right there without watching any more of it, you know, oh, okay, this is a setup. Now, the key takeaway from all of this is that the Duke fills the role of the highly prized yet unattainable bad boy. He is a charmer and a womanizer. He's older and worldlier than Daphne. And in contrast, Daphne is the sweet, innocent, just strong and independent enough not to be annoying young woman who's different from all the other girls. And you can just stop me if you've heard this story before. <laughs> you've heard it, right? All right. So through a twist of events, Daphne and the Duke conspire to pretend that they're courting. And this arrangement benefits the Duke 
because it's going to force the loathed mothers to back off and leave him alone for however long he's in town. And this arrangement benefits Daphne because being courted by the Duke will raise her own profile and make her desirably competitive, which will open up the odds of finding a quality marriage match. And of course, if you can put two and two together, you know that this is the inciting incident or the impetus or the, the bang that forces them to spend time together that's going to have them, quote unquote, fall in love with each other or whatever, right? I mean, it's just, it's by the book. You've seen this a hundred times before. It's not new. So why is it brilliant? Hang on, I'm getting there. All right, so we've got this arrangement going on that only Daphne and the Duke are aware of, right? And so when Anthony, Daphne's eldest brother, begins to believe the Duke is courting Daphne, he get he's just livid. Like his role is to find Daphne a good husband and then be done with this whole thing. And he knows that his friend, the Duke, can never be that husband. So over and over and over, he insists to Daphne and to Daphne's mother that the Duke will never marry. And Daphne's aware of this. This whole thing about the Duke never marrying, it's a capital T thing. And it sets up several layers of conflict and touches a few subplots in the story. Now, in good storytelling hands, the Duke being a womanizer with wanderlust and no intention of ever settling down or chaining himself to one place, that would be enough in itself to create an authentic character with authentic motivations and eventually an authentic inner conflict when this monkey wrench of a girl gets thrown into his avowed bachelor lifestyle machinery. That is what happens when a good storyteller is able to take whatever has already been done before a million times and create something with a new twist or a new uh, spin on it that it doesn't matter if you've heard the story before because now you want this unique take on it, right? But a great storyteller understands that for inner conflict to truly be meaningful, it has to be deeply personal and inherent to who a character is. And so they're going to dig past the surface and they're going to create something richer and fuller and integral to that character's core sense of self to create a foundation for that thing, whatever it is, okay? So that's what Bridgerton does with the Duke. In this story, the Duke's decision to never marry really isn't so much driven by his rakishness or wanderlust so much as that the rakishness and the wanderlust are driven by his decision to never marry, which in turn was spawned from the Duke's hatred of his father. So the backstory is this. The Duke's mother died in childbirth and the father is just this horribly cruel man who basically disowned his son in all but name and title. Not because he grieved the loss of his wife, but just because he's a jerk. And he had this really high set of standards and his son was sort of slow to speak. And so he just wrote him off as an idiot, as inferior and a disappointment and wished he'd never been born and was just horrible with his criticisms and his disavowalment and saying that he wished his son had never been born. And the son was raised by other people and he has no family. He has no connections. He's just alone all the way until the father's on his deathbed, at which point 
the now adult son has come home and the father hasn't seen his son and since his son was a child. And now as a father's dying, he tells this young man who he's treated as non-existent his whole life, how proud he is that the son will be carrying on the family name to which the son, our Duke, vows on his father's deathbed that he will never marry and he will guarantee that the family name dies with him. And this is so distressing to the father that the father basically croaks and dies right there. And you don't feel bad for him in the least little bit. And you fully support the Duke's decision. Like, yeah, screw you, you jerk. So anyway, what this means now from a storytelling point of view is that we've just taken a I'm the bad boy and now this girl is going to change me romance sort of it's a trope it is a thing you see it all the time um and and we've deepened it and we've given it something more and this decision for the duke his decision to never, never marry it is not just a i like my freedom thing I'm a bad boy thing. Now it's a very, very deep, very personal form of revenge. And what this does is it sets the stage for an equally deep, very personal inner conflict that's going to raise the stakes for both him as a character and for Daphne and the overall story. Because now it doesn't matter if the Duke ends up liking Daphne so much that he actually might want to marry her. There's this whole other thing, capital T, that is core to his sense of self and sense of identity and sense of destiny that's going to have to be overcome to bring the two together. Totally different level of stakes, totally different level of conflict. And as an audience, we instinctually understand that difference between obstacles and character. So family who disapprove of the match, that would be an obstacle. Obstacles can be, and in this genre, are expected to be overcome. But a match who vows to never marry as a way to ensure that this hateful lineage that brought him into the world dies out with him, that's character. And you can't overcome character with a pretty smile and a good personality and a few fake fights or whatever. It's a whole different higher set of stakes. So here's my takeaway from that. It is one thing to talk about and showcase this example of what it looks like when someone else has dug deeper to create a richer, sort of more authentic personal conflict. It's a fantastic example, which is why I'm talking about it. It makes it really clear and easy to understand it, but seeing somebody else do it is totally different than doing it yourself. So I thought I could follow that with a minute or two, maybe five, I don't know, to show you how I would approach this from the perspective of going about it in my own work. Now, to be very clear, I have zero, and I mean no, none, zip insight into how this show or the books it was based on was written. I don't even know how closely the show follows the books. I'm just saying, if I had a plot, in which a character like the Duke existed, this is how my own process would go for creating that deeper, personal, core sense of self inner conflict. Because it's easy to think that the minds behind this just 
instinctually knew how to do it. And that's not generally how it works. So for me, it would start with developing a basic outline. And this would be a one step forward, two step back thing where the general story ideas, which are where and when the story is taking place, the underlying themes, the subject matter, all of that, and the characters that are necessary to make those ideas happen, they would come together sort of in tandem, back and forth, back and forth between the ideas and the character characters until I sort of had a rough sketch of what the story was. And maybe 10 or so key turning points where the plots and the characters come together and sort of like this dot-to-dot sketch. It's going to give me its basic shape and structure. And once I have that, I would have a general sense of what the plot requires. So I would go back and take another look at the characters and how each character is directly connecting to each of those plot requirements. And here, what I would be looking for specifically are layers of conflict. And the driving question behind every single aspect is why? Why does this character do this? Why does this character go there? Why does this character feel this way about thing? Everything is why, 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 why? So let's say that in this particular story, I know that character A and character B are going to end up by as a couple by the end. But the plot It requires that these two characters are at odds with each other when they first meet and then throughout a lot of the story. And the question is, why? Why are they at odds? What's continuing to drive this antagonism? What would it take to break through the antagonism? Why is that? Why that specifically? And because I understand that conflict is what drives the story and that the deeper and more personal and more layered and even conflicting within the own character those conflicts are, the higher the stakes are going to be, and that's going to translate into the higher the audience emotional investment. So I keep going back to the why, scratching, scratching, trying to see if there's like even a deeper layer, a hidden level. Why, 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 why? And I answer those whys, and I keep answering them, and I will change them as the pieces start fitting together, and I'll keep answering them again until all the answers are going to fit every other answer. And by the time I finished answering all these whys, It feels like those answers are the characters themselves. They're driving the story and not the other way around. So they're all created to support the sketch, this idea that I created of where the story is supposed to go. And then because of answering all these whys, it starts to look like it's doing the other thing where the plot is now a result of the characters. And that's how it always should be. You should never feel like the plot is driving your characters, but that your characters and their choices are organic to who they are and that they're driving the plot. So at that point, once I have answered all these questions for myself, I set about specifically and deliberately building that character, their backstory, their mindset, their fears, their desires based on all those answers And it starts getting written into my rough drafts. And I'm going to attempt to do this. Basically get those whys, the answer to those whys out on the page in such a way that hopefully, knock on wood, the details speak for themselves. And that allows me to avoid explicitly stating most of it that way. And what that does is allows the audience to feel like they're part of the discovery process. And by bringing themselves into the story like that, 
they're going to be able to relate to and understand or at least empathize with this inner conflict as if it's an entirely organic thing. Now, again, I have no idea how the show Bridgerton was originally written. It's possible the original author wrote them purely seat of the pants and just let the story develop as it came to her. And it's also possible that's how the show was written too. But to me, looking at it with a storytelling eye and knowing how I would have done this, it seems to me more like the Duke's backstory, his history with his father, his reasons for never wanting to marry, that was created after the plot was developed, specifically to answer the question, why does the Duke insist he will never marry in the most deeply personal and meaningful way possible? And it is, it's possible to do that, that exact same thing as a seat of the pants writer. It just potentially means more rewrites and having to go back and integrate those ideas, you know, later as you start to figure it out that how many rewrites, how much work, I don't know. It depends on how innate that aspect of storytelling is to the author to begin with. And, you know, it's possible that some author, authors are so connected to the elements of story that these layers of depth, they just show up in the earliest drafts, but I'm not one of them. I have to work consciously and deliberately to make that happen. So don't feel bad if you have to work hard for it too. That is how most of us do it, where we we retroactively refit the characters' stories and backstories and histories and motives to bring out that depth, to create that inner conflict in a realistic way. So in the end, the audiences can't tell the difference in how that cake was made. All they know is how much they do or don't enjoy its texture and its flavors. So all I'm saying is use quality ingredients. And that's what creating this depth, this richness of inner conflict is. It's a quality ingredient and it is critical to your overall story structure. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is episode one of the Taylor Stevens Cooking Show. (laughs) (laughs) So first, let me just say that I was not expecting any of... You said two to five minutes. It was nine minutes at the end. But I was not expecting any of that. And I am so sorry for people who, who, the ones who you said may tune out as soon as you told what the the show was you're going to be talking about, because they will have missed some really good stuff there at the end. That's why you should always wait till the show is over. All right. Well, thank you guys very much for listening. Uh, We will be back with you with maybe more cooking, more recipes. I like that. I have no idea. I like the the recipe idea. (laughs) So, yeah, send more material, guys, because we need material to work with, questions to answer, feedback to give. Otherwise, I will probably just end up watching more TV and talking about lessons from TV because it's easy. So, yeah. All right, we'll be back with you again next Tuesday. Thanks for being here. See you next week.